somebody said to me um, that I did, I'd done very well because I was very good at standing up for myself. And I was like, yeah, it's because I'm a pain in the butt. That's what you actually mean, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a superstar, superstar seller, you have to do two jobs, or sometimes three jobs. It's not something that people like to talk about or think about. So, you know, you know when people begrudge paying three ninety nine for a book, you sort of kind of go, but that's a year of my life and that's my work. <laughs> yeah. Please pay three ninety nine or, you know, more than 99p because I, that's my heart and soul. But also that's what's yeah. meant to feed me. You weren't overly thrilled with how the Ice Cream Girls played out on television. No, I, I wasn't. That's, that's a very nice way of putting it, you know. I thought the actors in it did a fantastic job. They were all very good in the mm. roles they were given. But that was my issue, I suppose, the material they were given. It wasn't my story in the sense of the TV series seemed to go back to all their stereotypes, all their stereotypes that I'd worked to take out of my work. That's it, it's done now. The Ice Cream Girls are done. I couldn't go back. I'd have to... Really? Did you say that the last time around? <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another edition of Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And we've got a cracker for you today. And we'll tell you who it is in just a second. Before we do that, an absolute cracker of a (laughs) podcast episode. I love a Christmas cracker. Do you really? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know it's quite bad because you can get like Easter crackers and they're sort of trying to do them at different times, aren't they? Which is not good for the environment or anything else, but it's kind of fun, you know, getting confetti in a toilet roll holder. I mean, I can make you one. <laughs> okay. Got all the jokes for them. There you go. Done. <laughs> and who doesn't want more paper clips? Exactly. Or those little fish that kind of like tell you that you're jealous. Oh, yeah. Well, they're meant to move in the palm of your hand, those. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we've already gone off topic. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a record, isn't it? <laughs> it's my fault. Sorry. Uh, right. <laughs> Let's go to, um, we've got a name for this. I mean, we've been shouting out countries where we didn't think we'd be listening to, but we haven't got a name for it yet, have we? I think this is you with your radio head on going, let's call it a feature. Yeah, <laughs> like, hi, cool. countries. <laughs> Unexpected country of the week, I think we should call it. Okay, fine. If you, if you, you go, I was going to say, if you go as far <laughs> to make a jingle, I'm out. <laughs> so today, Natalie Jameson, mm-hmm. we want to say hello to our nine listeners. That's nine listeners in... Norway, ah, home of Scandinoir. Lovely. I've been to Oslo. Very expensive, but very beautiful place to visit. I've heard that about Oslo. When you say very expensive, I mean, um, did you buy a pint or a glass of wine? Can yeah, you give me a price I, I can't. But all I remember is, um, so bearing in mind that was living in the centre of London at the time and it felt astronomically expensive, oh, even more so than uh, a glass of London. something um, in London, yeah. Really wow, expensive, but that, gorgeous, that absolutely worth going. Um, if Did you see travel. the Northern Lights, or was it? Not I didn't. The right time no, yet? no, not um, not in the not in the city centre. But yeah, I'd love to do that one day. It looks amazing. Yeah. yeah. Very good. So, hello, Norway. Hi. And uh, I'm not going to blag a trip, obviously, because we're all locked down. But um, if there's a a Scandi thriller that you think we should be getting into on bestsellers, then by all means, let us know what that is by emailing us bestsellerspodcast at gmail dot com. Bestsellerspodcast, all one word at gmail.com. 
Who's coming up today? Uh, today Jameson. it is Dorothy Coombson, who is another fantastic author, and it was a real thrill to chat to her um, and read her brilliant book, which you'll hear all about very shortly. I did just want to say that at the very start of this recording, um, my son <laughs> came in and interrupted because I am still doing that work versus homeschool yeah. versus everything else juggle. And yeah. Um, yeah, I just decided to leave it in the edit because oh, yeah, in fine. kind of solidarity for anybody else who's still doing that. It's- I mean, I think, you know, there's no problem with that whatsoever. I was just disappointed he didn't have a question ready for Dorothy, so maybe you can have a word with him. <laughs> okay, next, next time, time yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for him joining in, but can he at least have a question? Yeah, I think the content might be a bit much for a seven-year-old on this one, if I'm honest, but, but we'll prep him. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I don't know. He's a, he's a bright guy. I'd stretch him. <laughs> All My Lies Are True is Dorothy Coombson's 16th book and it's a sequel to the bestseller The Ice Cream Girls which introduced us to the complex characters of Poppy Carlisle and Serena Gorringe. It's another emotional thriller that draws you into an incredibly believable world which is why all of Dorothy's novels have been Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. Hold on a second. (laughs) Yeah, they're in the laundry basket, the clean one. Sorry, seven-year-old. Um, Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us on Bestsellers. Um, first off, this book, like many of yours, is set in Brighton. Is that where you are right now, I take it? Yes, I live in Brighton now. When I, um, when I wrote The Ice Cream Girls, actually, I had, hadn't long moved to Brighton. Um, I'd been living in Australia just before that, and I moved to Brighton in 2007. Actually, I say it wasn't long. It wasn't actually, it was three years later. So yeah, <laughs> it was, it doesn't feel like it, obviously. It must have felt like it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I live in Brighton. That's why a lot of my later books from Goodnight Beautiful onwards um, are set in Brighton. Do you mind if I just ask how Brighton's been in lockdown? I've got a friend who lives in Brighton who said it's been party central and that people haven't really been staying in. Um hasn't been that bad actually I, d- I don't know because I've I've stayed in um nice. only my husband goes out to um to the shops and um I've been out about five times since lockdown happened because I started staying in a week before lockdown um and then we got our two puppies so and they couldn't we got them literally the day before lockdown happened um, cause we saw it, which way it was going. So we thought we will be, better go and get them. And so my husband's been walking them and I've been out for a few walks with them, but generally I haven't seen anybody because I've been in. So as far as I can see, as I could tell, it was, it wasn't party central. Some of the people around where I live were, have recently been having more people over, but it's been very quiet. It's been so, so quiet. And, um, just very calm it's been very strange not hearing all the buses going past and um school children and stuff it's been very very quiet a lot of writers have said to us on this podcast that it makes very little difference to them lockdown because what they do is so solitary anyway has it made any difference to your professional existence not really no i mean i like i spent a lot of time at home anyway writing at home so i work at home i know some writers go to cafes and stuff to work but i don't and um no, the only thing I I do differently, I suppose, is that I exercise more because I a group of us exercise every morning. We get together on a Zoom call and exercise together. Um, so that's so that's the only thing that's changed, I suppose. That's been a good thing. 
<laughs> the aching. Um, yeah, but that's about it, really. I don't. Nothing's really changed, no. How have you found that in terms of writing? Um, because I found writing really difficult in lockdown, and I think it's probably obviously because there are people around the entire time, and mm. it's really. I find it really hard to find that solo headspace that you need to get into. Are you okay to kind of just lock everything out and sort of push it away while you're writing still? Yes, I mean that's fine for me. I, I, if I'm not doing writing, it's because I don't want to. Basically, it's because you know I've always found you, you'll find as many excuses as possible to not write. I say this now, my editor's going to listen to this and go, "Oh, so Dorothy, you know when you say you need an extra couple of weeks?" No, I mean for me, I used to write on the train to work, so you know you kind of have to shut out all the other people and the noise. Um, and I often have a TV on or something when I work. So for me, it's not been, it's not been difficult. I haven't really, I haven't been in that point of the writing cycle. So I've been promoting this current book and then doing bits to do with that. And um, also just not writing, basically. <laughs> when you say you used to write on the train to work, mm. and this is book number 16, yeah. how many books in were you before you stopped going to work? Um, before I stopped getting on the train to work, it was when I came back from Australia. Um, so that was book um, Goodnight Beautiful. So I'd written Marshmallows. So my fourth, fifth book um, that I stopped actually um, getting on the train to work, you know. Um, and even though my third book had done really, really well, my, my best friend's girl did very, very well, I still needed... Um, to make sure that I was financially stable, you know, if you live on your own, you need to make sure that you can pay your mortgage, you can buy food, you can pay your bills. So in theory, I could have given up work a lot easy, earlier. Um, but the reality is I didn't want to because I've always had to look after myself financially. So I didn't want to take that risk. You know, I needed to make sure that I had a good financial, secure financial footing before I went off and before I stopped before I flipped my career on its head and I was stopped being a full-time journalist and started writing books full-time um that's basically what it is I know a lot of people find to think it's a fact think that writers are really rich and we make a lot of money um and it is a real fantasy because there's so few of us who make a full-time living from um writing books you have to do all sorts of other things teach courses teach in schools or do other jobs there's so I mean that's what the majority of writers are unless you're a mm. superstar superstar seller you have to um you have to do two jobs well sometimes three jobs and it's just the way it is it's not um it's not something that people like to talk about or think about so you know you know when people begrudge some um paying 3.99 for a book you sort of kind of go, but that's a year of my life and that's my work. <laughs> yeah. Please play 3 or, you know, more than 99p because I, that's my heart and soul. But also that's what's yeah. meant to feed me. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely a mismatch between how much people think authors get paid. Well, I feel like um, this is maybe a good point. Um, Phil, should we get Dorothy to read some of her lovely book? Yeah, let's just set it up a bit here because obviously, as Nat said in the intro, you've, you've revisited... Um, the ice cream girl so I think possibly before you read for us why don't you just do a, a sentence or two on why you chose to revisit these characters now at this point in your writing career what was it about them that came calling back to you 
Um, well, yeah, the story of the ice cream girls, about two, um, two girls who were at teenagers, when they're 15, they're accused of murdering their teacher, who they were both having a relationship with. And um, one of them went to prison and the other one got away with it also, you think, but she's lived her life the past 20 years, um, terrified of people, her husband particularly, finding out um, what she got up to as a teenager. And then the book skips to 20 years and in, in, to the present, which is 20 years later. And Poppy, the one who went to prison, um, she gets out of prison looking for revenge against Serena, the one who got away with it. And um, that's the whole premise of the Ice Cream Girls and how they're reunited and how Poppy kind of ruins, tries to ruin Serena's life. And Serena is trying to stop Poppy from ruining her life. Um, so that was that book. And I've always said I don't do sequels because my characters go through so much. I put them through so much trauma. It's not fair to um, revisit it, this trauma back on them. But apparently, if you're a nice green girl, that's not the case. So I decided <laughs> I wanted to, um, I really wanted to tell a story about modern day abuse. Because since I wrote The Ice Cream Girls, apparently we've got better at recognising the signs and dealing with it and the police um, investigating it. And there's all those coercive control laws that have been put in place to recognise how um, how important emotional abuse is as part of, of the whole abuse cycle. And um, But I was wondering if things had really changed or not. And I wanted to tell a story about a woman who'd been in an abusive relationship and then discovers that somebody close to her isn't in an abusive relationship as well, but she's not ever sure if they um, are the perpetrator or they're the victim like she was. So I thought, well, I've got the setup already with the mm. Ice Cream Girls. I can just, you know, move that story on and see how it would fare 10 years later. And didn't realise it was going to be really, really hard. And um, <laughs> not as simple as I thought at all. What was what was the hardest part then? Well, it's the knowledge that so many people love the Ice Cream Girls, you know, and mm. the thought of I was ruining that book, I could ruin that story for them, I could ruin their memories of it, or not take it any further, not bring it to a new place. Um, yeah, and also writing is not the easiest job in the world. I love what I do and I'm very fortunate to do it, but it's mm. really hard. So when you've got the additional pressure of getting it right and not making you know mistakes with like um continuity things so i had to keep going back to ice cream girls and double checking that such and such had such and such colored eyes and they lived here and they said this and they did do that um yeah so i had to do it for two or three time frames because i had to do it for um the current one that you know all my lives are true mm -hmm. is set in then the Ice Cream Girls one, and then the 80s when they were involved with their teacher, and then the mm -hmm. 90s when Poppy was in prison. So it was like a constant, all these timelines having to kind of merge them together so that they, they don't, they're not clunky and don't... So, yeah, that's, that was all the hard things about it. How did it. you do that? Did you have a big kind of board on your wall with lots of black marker on it? Uh, yeah, well, usually I've got, a, a notice, I've got two or three notice boards, actually, in my office, which has lots of different... Um, I have post-it notes and stuff, but a lot of it I keep in my head. Um, but I, I write down a lot of the things that need to happen and I put them on, on post-its onto my board and then I move things around because I, I um, as I said before to several other people and it horrifies them, I don't write in order. 
So sometimes I write the end first and then I write the middle and then I write the beginning or I write the middle first and then the beginning and then the end. Um, so I have to kind of keep it in my head as much as possible. Um, and when you when you say you might do the middle first or the end first, mm. is that just about what your brain tells you to do first? Yes, what's, what's in my the scenes that are in my head that um, need to be written down. For example, in All My Lives Are True, the scene that came into my head first was the scene where Poppy and Serena are kind of reunited with the scene where Serena says hello Poppy and she replies hello Serena that sort of that moment was the first mm -hmm. thing I wrote of this whole book so it wasn't um the beginning bit of you know when you find out the relationship setups um or the end where you find out who did or didn't do it or why or why not or whatever I'm trying to be vague <laughs> I like to spoil yeah, yeah, no, yeah, so no, about to say, to, "Oh, you mean the bit where?" And then I thought, "Don't say it." <laughs> um, yeah, so that was. But I think that's also really clever that the, you, that you jump around and can do that because that scene, I think, by having written that really early on, gave you the opportunity to then really build up to it because when it comes, it like crackles with tension when you read it, and I'm not sure how much. I, I, obviously, I know writers are incredibly skilled and I'm sure you would have found a way to do that if you were writing chronologically, but I kind of like that you had that first and then you could kind of like do all the building up to it. Yeah, and the whole story kind of branched out from that of being reunited with each other because, you know, clearly neither of them wants to see each other ever again, but they have to come back together for the new book and for the new story. <laughs> okay, so the bit you've prepared to read for, for us then, where do we join the story? Um, it's actually at the beginning where we... Um, because I, I kept looking at different bits, but I can't. I have to read a bit longer. So I thought I'll read the beginning bit, and which give people an idea of what the ice cream girls are about. Um, I just actually just said all about what it is about. <laughs> Realise that. Um, but I'll, I'll, what I'm going. I'll read this bit anyway. Um, Perfect. Blog post: The ice cream girls. What happened next? Posted by Nia Birkinshaw. Does anyone remember the so-called ice cream girls? They were accused of killing their teacher. They were having an affair with him. Does anybody remember that? My mum has been asking me for ages if I could find out about them on the internet and ask you all on here. Apparently they treated him really badly and then they killed him at his, at his house. Their names were Serena Gorringe and Poppy Carlisle. Mum says the trial seemed to go on forever, but only Poppy went to prison. Serena got away with it. Mum says she was really, really fascinated by the story because they were like the evil superstars of her time and it kind of just ended when Poppy went to prison. Mum says she thought when Poppy got out again that she and Serena might go on a murderous hunt together again, but nothing. By the way, Mum said that, not me. If you could ask your mums and dads about it on the off chance that someone might have heard or seen anything, that'd be well cool. DM me or drop me a line or leave a comment below. Kisses. I love the setup for yeah. it. I'm also, yeah, I'm also incredibly impressed by how you write young characters and make them sound so believable and you never quite know who to believe at any one point and you challenge the reader's perception and keep challenging it throughout the book. Um, is there one character that you particularly enjoyed being in their head for the most to write this one? Oh, that's a question. That's an interesting question. I've never been asked that before, actually. Um, 
I don't know, it was, it was weird going back to um, Serena and Poppy because they, I'd been in their heads mm. and their lives so long ago. Um, it was interesting being Verity because she was a teenager in the first book and we never really heard from her. We just heard about her and being her this time round was a really different experience because, you know, she's 24 but she thinks she knows it all and then she gets herself into these mm-hmm. situations and then you kind of wonder if who she is and what she's really like. Um, but I think I think my favourite character to... I mean, we hear about him, but we don't ever actually get into his head, is Conrad, uh, Verity's brother. Because he is so... Mm. He's just so funny and he just doesn't really... He doesn't really... Um, he isn't really the sort of person you think he is. He's very different from how you expect him to be. And the fact that he, you know, when... His sisters go for a really difficult time. He just keeps taking the mickey out of her rather than, you know, pandering to her, how everyone's falling, everyone else is around them is falling apart and he just keeps going, well, you know what, you're a jailbird. What, that's nothing to do with me. So I liked writing him the best, I think. Yeah. And I know that you said that you don't like doing sequels, but do you think you're going to do more in this? Is it going to become a trilogy, <laughs> perhaps? Because I have... Again, I don't want to give anything away, but I audibly gasped at the end. It was like, Ugh! it's a proper cliffhanger. I loved it. Uh, yes, no, no, that's it. It's done now. The ice cream girls are done. I couldn't go back. I'd have to... Really? Did you say that the last time around? <laughs> I did, yes. But I have to do, I'd have to do five or six timelines this time. It'd be, it'd be oh no. My mother-in-law actually read it um, <laughs> on holiday. She... Just before she went on holiday, I gave I, the proofs came in, so I managed to give her a proof, mm. and she um, she went on holiday, and then she discovered that somebody around the pool was reading the Ice Cream Girls, and she sort of said to them, "Oh, you know the sequel's coming." She didn't say that I was married to her son, but she said, "Oh, the sequel's coming out," and they were really excited, and she said, "I was sat there with it in my bag, thinking." <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, she said that about the end. She said, "I've got to. You've got to write a third book." And I was like, "Yeah, no, yeah, no, I can't do. It. I can't put myself through that yeah, again. No, you have. I really can't. I can't put myself through all that. Oh, and also, you know, no, <laughs> no. But you do. Okay, we'll come back to it in a year's time. Oh, yeah, no, that'd do. be it. Ten years time, someone will go. So that Ice Cream Girls Seek trilogy. Where is that? Wait, 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 wait. Welcome to another edition from Bestseller Season Four. <laughs> And we'd like to welcome back Dorothy King. <laughs> yeah, the next live stream He's telling story. us more about Conrad this yeah. time. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. Oh, see, yeah. yeah. Oh, now see, there's yeah. a thought. Yeah. yeah. I haven't done an ice cream boys yeah. yet, just saying. No, exactly, and I could, yes. Well, I, I could see where that could go. Yeah. Oh, there you go. No, <laughs> it's not Yay. happening. You workshopped it here first. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, Dorothy, if I may, I want to read a couple of sections to you that really stood out to me just to ask you what lies behind some of the pros if that's all right Um, and again I'm going to do this without concealing or by concealing where they are in the book Mm -hmm. to not give anything away but um, here's a part this stands alone I think actually I remember Tina friend Tina would say all the time no matter how she said things people would take it the wrong way they would paint her aggressive and dismiss everything that came out of her mouth because of it I didn't get what she meant until I'd been out of prison for a while and realised that the prison face, convict voice, got you nowhere. Tina said this happened to her before she went to prison, simply because she was speaking up while black. And the thought of that, how just being normal was criminalised, made me depressed. Now, um, I suppose first question is, 
have you experienced that yourself? Second question is, I assume you haven't been to jail. Do you feel it's more exacerbated if you have? And did you speak to people who've spent time in jail to bring that perspective to the pros? I did sort of find out about people who've been to prison. And um, one of the first things I did was read their prison diaries, read people's prison diaries and people, especially people who who still maintained their innocence um, all the time, despite how long they went to prison for and, you know, went through that court process. And and one of the things that happens in The Ice Cream Girls and also in All My Lies Are True is showing how prison changes a person and how, you know, you become very quickly part of how the mentality, but also, you know, you know how to behave and how to protect yourself and stand up for yourself. You learn that very quickly. It's not... um, it's not an overnight process, but it's a gradual one until you kind of, a lot of people said that, you know, they turned around and they were a different person and they were constantly on edge, constantly looking out to for being attacked. But also a lot of them said that, you know, um, being in prison, there was so much camaraderie. There's a lot of stuff that you don't actually realise that a lot of people look out for each other. They, they become really close friends. They, they really rely on each other and, um, they'll always be looking out out to make sure that that person's okay. Um, so that was part of it. And also, I mean, you know, I can't think of any black woman who hasn't been at some point accused of being aggressive just for, you know, for saying something, maybe a bit too sharply, accused of shouting. And, you know, it's, it is something that I think pretty much every black woman I know has experienced. So, yeah, you know. Do you think that's so an on agenda thing? Because I could, I would probably say as a white woman that similarly, if I've raised my voice, I get accused of being hysterical or over emotional mm. in that way. Um, I guess sometimes less aggressive that those terms aren't used as much, but I think it's interesting perhaps how race still plays in with the gender card as well and how people mm. put different labels yeah. on things, but it's still just trying to, somehow explain a part of a woman's personality that maybe people don't understand i don't know or, or just decide to dismiss no, i don't i don't know if they're trying to explain it or more as, as more shut you down yeah. stop you from talking and stop you from pro from sort of like speaking up or you know it's a very none of us want to be seen as aggressive or um unpleasant or people i mean girls are socialized very early on to be to to um behave as to make people like us mm-hmm. And if someone's telling you that the way you're saying something is um, making you not likable, it, it is very hard for, for a lot of girls to not, un- to, you know, to continue standing up for themselves. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the time it's, you know, standing up for yourself or you're pointing out something that's wrong. Yeah. They, you know, it's, you're kind of silenced and diminished in that way. And um, it takes a lot, I think, Um to carry on talking and to carry on sort of like, you know, not being intimidated by the thought of people not liking you because, you know, you need to stand up for yourself or for other people. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been called stubborn my whole life. I think that's a good thing. Oh, I am. <laughs> I am. I'm stubborn. Of course I am. Yeah. If I wouldn't get, I would have got where I was exactly. if I wasn't stubborn and yeah. tenacious and carried on. And somebody said to me um, that I did, I'd done very well because I was very good at standing up for myself. And I was like, yeah, it's because I'm a pain in the butt. That's what you actually mean, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Standing up for myself or just being a pain in the butt. But, you know. Exactly. It's not necessarily negative, though. But, no, no. But the, problem, 
the problem is that if you, if you're stubborn, Natalie, would I be tenacious? That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can be both. You don't have to be either or. No, I was just saying the way the debate is framed at the moment. See what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Natalie's point is that oh, she gets yes, stubborn because yes. she's a woman, whereas because I'm a man, I'd get tenacious. Yeah, tenacious, yeah. This is kind of going off topic, but um, I, again, only recently quite frustratingly was kind of looking back on some of my journalism career and um because you're a journalist as well Dorothy and the amount of editorial meetings I've been in where there's sort of like a cycle of being it being really frustrating where you come up with an idea and it gets shut down in a meeting and then literally like a week later a man sorry Phil would come up with the same idea (laughs) and it would get praised (laughs) and commissioned and and at the time I used to think that oh I Oh, maybe maybe I just didn't say the idea well enough. I, I should improve the way I pitch ideas. And then as I've kind of got older, I've just got really cross that, crap, was it just because I was a woman that people didn't take it seriously or just didn't listen? I should just so say that's annoying. happened to me as well, though, probably at the same place. Exactly. Did that happen to you at all, Dorothy? Um, well, there's actually been research, not by me, but there's actually been research that shows that this is a constant thing that women... Mm. um have to put up with well endure and you know and and there is very little you can do about it there's very little you can do about it because again as you said you're sort of socialized to not speak up in that meeting and sort not say you know I'm sure that if I stole someone's idea or I reimagined someone's idea and I went into my boss and um got it recommissioned the um that person if it was a man, would would probably go in straight and go, well, that was my idea. What do you think you're doing? And that, that yeah, um, yeah. And women again, we're not told or taught how to do that without you know without a personal cost, you know. Um, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wasn't um, overtly, but it's kind of those things where you kind of go, right. So I had that idea, and and apparently it's it's fine now. That's an interesting topic now, is it? Oh yeah, yeah. okay. Um, but you know, people, I think. It's a constant thing of being erased and your experiences, your voice, your words, your ideas being erased or being appropriated by somebody else because they think they can do it better. And mm-hmm. traditionally, I think a lot of people haven't been told that they can't do it better. They, they, you know, that someone who's lived that experience or someone who's had the idea, how they got to that idea is so different to someone who's just basically heard about it and then is trying to, you know, trying to get that article written or, you know, whatever, book mm-hmm. written or whatever. So, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I suppose I'm saying, you know, it's, yeah, it's, no. a, it's a constant <laughs> historical thing. It's something that is a constant. And until I think we get better at finding ways to battle this, because clearly the old ways mm-hmm. of battling it and trying to speak up are not working. So there are other, there need to be other avenues where, you know, you, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that, but the old ways haven't been working. So there need to be new ways of doing things, I think. Agreed. Um, I've got one more passage I'd like to put to you from the book, um, <clears throat> which again, I'd like to get your, your wider perspective on. Uh, this is in the voice of Serena where she says, everyone treats you like you're guilty. You start to believe you're guilty. Innocent until proven guilty is just a nice thing to trot out for the people who are unlikely to find out the actual truth of being arrested and accused. And uh, again, I'm reading that. I've only only read that in the last week or so where the backdrop to this, I just want to explain in case we don't put this episode out for a couple of weeks or so, 
is that there's been an escalation in stopping search in London and innocent people are being aggressively stopped and searched by police. Uh, I read one account over the weekend of a British sprint champion stopped and searched and cuffed and had a toddler in the back of the car and then no apology from the police but just told that they were free to go because actually the police's suspicions turned out to be inaccurate. Is that what you were driving at when you wrote that prose? Is it, is it that feeling or, or what was it? It's more a case of um, that thing that people keep saying, there's no smoke without fire. Whenever anyone's accused of something, but we seem to be living in this world nowadays where someone says something and that's the truth. And no matter what you say to try and you know combat that or to disprove it, people, there's still people who don't believe it. You know, in, in that case you were just talking about, the amount of people who were going, well, what happened before the video? Or what happened when this? And that's a constant thing. There'll be mm. video evidence, but they'll always, be, they'll always be wanting you to find something else. And this is what Toni Morrison was talking about when she said about um, the real purpose of racism is distraction. It stops you from doing your work because you're constantly trying to prove yourself. You're constantly trying to prove that you're innocent or that you're right or you're constantly working to someone else's agenda. And that's the sort of thing. So with Serena, in that moment, she, you know, we all have this idea that it's innocent to proven guilty, but that that's not how it is. You know, you hear something and you kind of mm-hmm. instantly, you make a decision about what you believe. And it takes, it takes a Herculean feat to change your mind, to make you believe otherwise, you know, no matter how much you think you're open-minded, you do kind of go, oh, well, actually, maybe. Um, especially if the, if the story is mm-hmm. plausible. We see it on the internet all the time. People will trot out a whole load of lies and then you spend a lot of time trying to say, but that's not true, but that's not true. And people will constantly go, well, but this, and well, this is the situation to prove to me that that, you know, you can't prove a negative, as they say, you know, you can't, you can it's very hard to prove your innocence when people have made already made up their minds. So that's what I was more talking about with, um, and with the first book, Serena and um, Poppy, as Serena says in this book as well, there's only, there was, it was a twist of fate that stopped her from going to prison. Um, and, you know, she's fortunate in that thing, in that sense, because it stopped her from going to prison, this one little thing, whereas Poppy wasn't as fortunate and, but everybody mm-hmm. believed that they were both guilty. They were meant to kind of wait until the trial was over and all the evidence had been presented, but no one does that. No, we were, we were talking actually on an earlier episode. We had um, a retired uh, QC and judge, Sir Richard Enriquez, um, talking about many of the cases that he'd presided over and been a part of. And that prejudice is rife through so many of them. And I've done jury service as well. And... Um, yeah, it's a terrifying experience. Uh, but just going back to the book as well, I, I think you you have that thread going throughout because it all depends who's telling the story at each particular time as well. And that changes and challenges what you think is true. And I, I remember being about halfway through this book and uh, I do this quite often, whereas sometimes I think I'm quite smart and then I really miss the obvious things. Um, <laughs> about halfway through the book, I was like, oh, it's called All My Lies Are True. <laughs> like, oh my god that's so clever <laughs> I had like this moment of clarity and I was like oh no I don't really don't know who to believe in and what is it but um 
Yeah, it's, it's genuinely so impressive how you do that. And I can see why it was such hard work and why there's a reticence perhaps to go back to all those timelines and, and all the rest of it in it. Um, I wanted to ask you about adaptations um, because I know the Ice Cream Girls was on ITV about five years ago or so. But um, I read in the last week that one of the actors who was in the Ice Cream Girls, Nicholas Pinnock, he started his mm-hmm. own production company and he's yes. adapting another one of your books tell me your secret um, and yes. I wondered how you felt about that because I know I don't want to kind of go into it too much obviously because I know it's a, a, a tricky subject but you weren't overly thrilled with how the Ice Cream Girls played out on television. No I, I wasn't that's, that's a very nice way of putting it you know wasn't overly thrilled you know seriously it is a long time ago now <laughs> you know so I have stopped the rocking and, and the sort of crying and stuff yeah I've stopped all that you know, I've moved on from all that. Um, I, um, yeah, um, I kept in touch with Nicholas, actually, after he was in the Ice Cream Girls. And I've said this all along, and I'll, I'll say it again. I thought the actors in it did a fantastic job. They were all very good in the mm. roles they were given and with the material that they um, were given. But that was my issue, I suppose, the material they were given. It wasn't my story in the sense of I researched the story really well and thoroughly and I found out about abuse and um, and its roots and how it's... And essentially, what I found out was not what I thought. I went into the book thinking I knew about abuse and I came away from it realising mm-hmm. that there are so many different elements and emotional abuse has to be there before anything else before the physical stuff I didn't realize that before the first time a person's hit in a relationship usually a woman there's been months weeks and months of abuse going on and that abuse starts with the whole love bombing and treating that person like they're a goddess Mm -hmm. like they're the most important being to have ever lived so that you can you almost have this this bar this benchmark going into the relationship and thinking that this person will treat you like that forever. So when these things sort of start dipping and they do dip and then they go back up again and then dip and they go back up again, you're always waiting for that back up again. But the dips get shorter. I mean, the dips get longer and the ups get, um, are very few and far between. And the timeline between up and down, up and down gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So you have lots of long downs and then very very short amount of up until there's no up at all but you're constantly mm-hmm. because your brain has been sort of trained to believe that the up will come again you you hang around waiting for that and that's how the emotional abuse starts before the physical stuff and I discovered this from talking to people doing the research and also the other main thing that I found was that it could happen to anybody any of us could end up in a relationship not the stereotypical people that, you know, you often think, you know, the the girl who's grown up with a, a pram-faced mum or grown up with, um, you know, a single black mother who lives on the council estate, that's who we were constantly told ended up in those relationships. And it, and it isn't those people. It's every one of us. Mm. Any of us could be in the situation that Poppy and Serena ended up in. Um, and the TV series seemed to go back to all those stereotypes, all those stereotypes that I kind of worked to take out of my work so that I could, you could, we could read the book and you could really understand. And I had so many emails 
um, and physical letters from people saying that the Ice Cream Girls was the first time they'd seen themselves and they'd actually had to look at their relationships um, and realise that they'd been in an abusive relationship or they were in one or they were in a, a relationship that they needed to get out of. I had so many emails and letters like that and to see it all kind of erased on the TV show was heartbreaking. Mm. That's what upset me. I didn't care that they changed the killer, the ending, the setting, or the family <laughs> setup of everybody. That wasn't as awful for me as as the fact that they did this thing that helps to perpetrate this this myth and also keeps women particularly in bad relationships because, you know, they can watch that and go, oh, it's not, my life's not as bad as that. It's not as bad as that. So I can carry on in this, in this situation. Um, so when I sent Nicholas a copy of, of Tell Me Your Secret, because he played Dr. Evans, Serena's husband in The Ice Cream Girls, he rang me up and um, we'd spoken a few times and he rang me up and he said, I know you weren't that happy with the other stuff, but would you be interested in um, me adapt, adapting this for the screen? And as I said to you, you know, time's moved on. I've stopped the rocking and the crying. So I was like, yeah, fine, why not? Because, you know, you, you get those offers all the time. They happen all the time and then nothing ever comes of it. So I just sort of said yes. And then, and then it kind of became more of a reality as time went on. And, you know, I met him and his production partner his business partner teal and we talked some more and they both had very clear ideas about turn your secret and they also they weren't going to erase the stuff that i'd written about and they weren't going to change it to be more palatable i suppose um mm -hmm. for audiences so that was so that's where we, that's how I got to that stage with him. But you know, I, Do you like... know, I don't think you're you, you're unique in that. You know, I know a number of writers who've had books optioned, and then when they see the screenplay, it does not resemble yeah, their book. Absolutely, and it's and it's really unnecessary, I suppose, is the thing. Because why do you think they do it? Do you think is it a simplification process? What what is it they think TV audiences can't handle that reading audiences can? That's the thing. I I think that's. I mean, I, I don't. I think it's um, less prevalent now because there is so much stuff being made that it's they can keep the source material as close together. But I think, yeah, I think they, they think people don't um, can't handle it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I know with my stuff, it felt like they read my book and went, oh, that's a nice idea, Dorothy, about what abuse is about. But really... We all know it's this. And so that's what we're going to make. Mm -hmm. You know, we like the setup you've created, but really what you don't know what you're talking about. And that's what, that's what it felt like. It's not, no one actually said that to me, but that's how it, it came across with the final product. And as I say, you know, like, you know, the actors did a very good job with, with what they were given. And I, I can't praise them enough because I thought they, they were all great, but it wasn't my story as it were. And the difficulty or the conundrum, I guess, is what we were talking about earlier, is that if as the author you speak up and say this, you're automatically like, oh, like that bitter, angry author who yeah. didn't like what the TV adaptation yeah. looks like in the end. And yeah, someone did really say that to me. It's really hard to change that narrative. <laughs> did they? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, when at the time I did email a couple of people and tell them what I thought. Um, 
because I can't stop myself sometimes. But I didn't. But why should yeah, you? But yeah. I didn't want to spoil it for all the people who wanted to watch it out there. And you know, lots of people enjoyed it, and I probably would have enjoyed it um, a few years before I wrote the book because I had no clue about what what abusive relationships was all about. So, um, so I did. I I kept quiet publicly because I want, didn't want to spoil it for anybody else. I didn't want to anyone else to. You know, and as you can you you can see every single day, you log onto social media, and you know, people are just waiting to spoil things for you. You say you like something, and someone goes, "Oh, well, that's a, the, the, this, 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 and this." So yeah, you know, I didn't want to be that person, so I just kept it to myself. But behind the scenes, I did tell people what I thought. Yeah. So um, I for what it's worth, there's somebody very close to me who was in an emotionally abusive relationship, um, and. So reading this book as well was pretty tough sometimes, but also um, I wanted to thank you for the research and the and the care that you took with that story because there, despite this happening a while ago now, um, there were some bits in there where I felt really ashamed because you read it and I'm like, oh crap, that was part of the abuse and I was just being I was being mean to this person saying why aren't you standing up or why aren't you doing that and blah, blah, blah. and then it's really hard to unravel the complexity that the perpetrators of emotional abuse put into mm. carrying out the horrific things that they do and so I fully get why if those you know it, it, well I say it shouldn't be hard to portray that on screen but sometimes I think there's there's a lack of uh, willingness to take a risk that actually audiences are ready to hear that yeah. and should be okay to hear that. And how how do you know that they're not going to be accepting of it if you don't give them a chance? I know later things have shown that you can show it on screen. It's just, I think at certain points, people just don't want to hear it. And also, you know, when you, mm. when you look back at it, you've got to be careful about people having friends and family and people you love in emotionally in abusive relationships whether it's physical or emotional because one of the first things to go is people around you so the perpetrator mm-hmm. will yeah. spend a lot of time getting rid of the support system because they want you to be on your own and so you end up really angry with your friend for not standing up for himself but also for just yeah. letting you down for not coming out on a night out for working really hard and having no money to show for it or for, you know, dressing completely different to, to how they... There's so many things that they do that kind of almost trigger you in your... in That uh, that turn out to be trigger points in your relationship with them. So that will end with, with them being alone and having nobody. But then, you know, and then there's the other side of it where you don't want to be somebody who enables them and to, who allows them to no. continue in that relationship without saying something. I know I used to say to people, you know, so, okay, so is this the game we're playing today then? Fine. As long as we're both aware that this isn't a great situation, you can talk to me about it, but I'm not going to pretend it's okay. And it's hard for people to hear and they mm-hmm. don't want to hear it and they will kind of walk away from you. But as long as you let them know that you're still there and that you will help them mm-hmm. when they're ready, because mm-hmm. it is, no one's leaving until they're ready. There's just no, no, you can't get rid of them. So, but it is a difficult um, situation to be in as watching someone else go through it and walking the fine line of not enabling them, but also not rejecting them. So it is. Yeah. On your, um, you okay? Yeah. 
I'm fine. Are yeah, you, Nat, Nat, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I think. I didn't well, want to move it on without with... knowing that you were okay. <laughs> well, I think it's really difficult because obviously these are very emotional subjects, and you know, I I kind of feel some of Dorothy's pain in that you you've taken all that care to do it well. And then when it gets shown in a superficial way or there's a, you know, I, I don't particularly like reading about violence, but I'm OK if I can understand the reasoning behind it. But if it's just portrayed as violence, then I don't want to watch yeah. it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to read about it. So, yeah, I, I don't, I've, I'm always very careful with my books to not, well, almost always careful to not show too much violence and to not show to not to go beyond a certain point so it's the idea of it um rather than spelling it out being gruesome and being you know being graphic about it I I, I don't like reading about it or watch you know the amount of times I'm sitting there going is it over is it over to my husband when I'm watching something mm-hmm. and it could be the most it could be something that most people would be fine with but I, I can't just I got like you know I mean sometimes I've turned over on soaps when something's going to happen to someone like you know I mean, one character was going to get arrested for, for accidentally shoplifting, and I had I couldn't watch it. It was just too stressful, so I had to turn it over. I'm such a wimp <laughs> in that respect. <laughs> I just can't. I can't do it. But um, yeah, so I understand what you mean about you know, there's there's certain things you can't read about or you can't watch, um, mm-hmm. unless you kind of understand where it's coming from. And even then, for me, sometimes it's it's not doable. True. Here's what I wanted to ask you about the. Um the press release around All My Lies Are True about around this new book. Mm. At, at the very, very bottom, your publisher tells us, All My Lies Are True is the 16th novel from the UK's biggest-selling black female writer of adult fiction, Dorothy Coombson. Mm-hmm. And my question is, would you like to reach a stage where we don't mention your colour at all? Or do you think it's necessary? Oh, I am who I am, you know. You can talk about, you can talk about all elements of who I am. I don't, um, I don't, I don't see the need to erase who I am and who I am is a black woman. So, you know, we can talk about that. I, I've no, I have no issue with it. As I said to somebody, tell me all the compliments you want to about anything. <laughs> I don't mind. I'd like to hear it all. No, I, I, I'm not going to uh, pretend that I don't want to, people to, to, to um, not mention the fact I'm black. It's like, you know, I don't see colour. People say I don't see colour. I was like, well, well I do. Why don't you? You know, I'm, it's not as if it's not as if yeah. I'm not going to notice when I first speak to you. So no, I, I don't mind. I don't mind it at all. I mean, other people might mind it. Other people have, might have different takes on it. But for me, I am who I am. And being a black woman, being black, growing up in London, moving to Brighton, living in Australia, have all shaped who I am. So, you know, maybe that should try and crowbar that into the press release as well. Dorothy Coombson grew up in London and <laughs> she lives in Australia and she's got two crazy puppies. Yeah. They're called Fufu and Jalof. What have they destroyed? Do you know Hang what? on. They've... I just need to describe the face Dorothy pulled when she said they're a bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a feeling that you're a woman who's struggling to control her new dogs. Am I right? Oh, do you know what? We've been there. We've been there. At the beginning, it was like, what is this hell? What have I done to myself? But they're actually very good at the moment. They're, they're just a bit... Um, mad. They are, they you know they're Yorkshire Terriers, so they're very clever. They're not as small as you'd think. They're you know especially because they're they're, they're two sisters, but one's huge. 
compared to the other ones. One's so much bigger than that's how we tell them apart. You know, they one's huge, Jalof is mm. huge, and then Fufu is um tiny. And they're just mad. They haven't destroyed that much, to be fair. They've been I mean, they've chewed stuff. And every now when mm. they're teething they chew stuff. But you know, they're funny. And whenever I walk into a the room they're like, Hi, it's you, I like you. You feed me <laughs> Yeah, they're they're actually quite good. They did actually get start to go to the loo where they they were meant to quite quickly, but um because we got them just before lockdown happened, we couldn't take them to the vets for ages because the vets were doing emergencies, so we couldn't get them mm-hmm. microchipped or vaccinated. And um, and as lockdown went on, the vets actually said, look, just bring them and we'll do it because it is an emergency. Because what will happen is if you don't start taking them out, they'll just get scared of the outside world. So, um, yeah, so we managed to get them. So that's what... Much like human beings in lockdown, well, exactly, I feel. There's yeah. a parallel there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm aware that um, I don't want to take up all of your day, Dorothy, but I just also did want to ask about, um, I was really interested in the open casting call that you put out for the audiobook for All My Lies Are True to find hmm. your verity and how that went and, and what the end result was. Oh, it was great. I mean, I was really surprised at how people sort of like took it up and... There were loads of people applied and we had so many good um, people at every stage. It was really hard. Really, I can't, t- I know people say this all the time, but it was really hard. You listen to someone and you go, oh yeah, that's the person. And the next person will put a different inflection or they'll, they'll, they'll read it in a slightly different way. Go, oh no, that's the person. So yeah, we managed to whistle it down, um, a group of us. And then we whittled it down to, I think it was 10 um and then we had to keep going over it until we got to two and then we got to the last two and it literally had to go to a blind lesson for other people because we couldn't we couldn't choose it was so close um but the woman we chose she was great she was absolutely great she was so thrilled and um she did a really good job and I actually chatted to her at the end of the audiobook so if you do get the audiobook there's me and her chatting about um the process and how much he enjoyed it so I said to her what was the one of my questions was like what was it like reading the sex scenes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she seemed to enjoy it but then she said you know imagine my parents listening to me <laughs> talking about mm-hmm. all because the, there are mm-hmm. quite a few sex scenes in the in the book um so yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah so that was great actually when, and... I didn't feel they were awkward though when I read them they didn't feel awkward oh no I, I don't think they feel awkward I mean other people find them difficult as in readers I've been told off so many times for my sex scenes apparently they're disgusting and they're just unnecessary I'm like yeah whatever whatever <laughs> <laughs> well a sex scene's a sex scene you know what so isn't that really interesting because I I don't know about you, Natalie, but as a reader, I've been disgusted by some much tamer stuff because it's been badly written. Do you know what I mean? I think if a mm-hmm. sex scene feels... Because part of the reason I read Dorothy is to escape and I want to be transported into a different world. If I'm transported into a world and it feels like these two characters would now be having sex, then let them have sex. And providing you tell me that in the right way, which you do, that didn't stand out to me at all. No, it doesn't. I don't, I don't think so. You know, I don't, I don't put a... Sex scene in just for the hell of it. I don't go, oh, actually, do you know what? There hasn't been any sex for a few pages. I think I might better throw <laughs> something in. I better get these two together to, to do it. No, I, I don't do that. But, um, 
yeah, people turn me off all the time, but maybe because I'm just a bit, maybe because the characters enjoy it too much. Maybe the women enjoy it too much. It's not, it's very rarely a, a sex scene where the man's sort of taking leads and maybe that's what they, they're not used to. But I don't know. Um, well, but As a man, I didn't notice that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to, I'm going to get embarrassed saying this because I am quite British, but I, when I read sex scenes as well, what I really liked about reading your sex scenes too, Dorothy, I can't even look at the screen when I say it, <laughs> is I always, I'm following, I, when I'm reading the scene, I'm following the action in my head and I get really annoyed if it always ends with the man on top, which yours doesn't. <laughs> no, you know, how dare she orgasm before him and not care if he finishes or not, you know. <laughs> not that that happens in this book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Or in your life, come on. Like, yeah, no, never. No spoilers. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, so the casting call was was um, was a real success, and I'm and some some of the people who who were shortlisted, longlisted, then shortlisted, they their names and their voices have been kept on file, so that hopefully in the future, when they need young black voices, female voices for audiobooks, they will be approached. So all win win as far as I'm concerned. Really good, really good. So, aside from the Karma Sutra, can you recommend some other books for me? <laughs> I've never read the Karma Sutra, ever. No, me neither. No, I'm sure my husband would be very upset by me admitting that. Um, <laughs> but um, well, um, other books, a um, couple of books I've read recently were The Colour of Love, um, which is by Bolu Babalola. And um, it's coming out at the end of July, and it's a fantastic um, short story collection, but reimagined mystical um, fairy tales and mythical stories, which are fa- it's fantastic because they're all um, kind of modernised, but not modernised, but they're kind of our world, but not. But they're so fantastic, and they had a lot of them have such a great twist in the tale that um, that I think people really really enjoy it. Um, the other one I read recently was If I Don't Have You by Sarita Domingo. And again, it was a, it's a basically a love story, but with a twist. And the characters aren't, don't often do what you expect them to do. You know, you kind of think it's going one way and then it completely veers off into a, a different direction. Um, I'm also reading Came Warriors by Alex Wheatle. And it's set in a plantation in Jamaica. <clears throat> in, um, and it's about a slave uprising um, told through the eyes of a 14-year-old boy. And it's based on um, real events. And also Eight Pieces of Silver by Patrice Lawrence. Um, I'm reading them both at the same time. And this is about a young girl whose older sister, stepsister, disappears. Um her sister's called Silver, and so she basically has to find out all these different parts about her sister's life to find to find out where she's gone to. So those are the four books I'd recommend. I know you said two, but, you know. No, no, listeners, the more the merrier. What I want, I no. genuinely want to ask you is, how do you read two books at a time and write? Um, well, at the moment, I'm not writing. Okay. She says, knowing her editor's <laughs> listening. Um, <laughs> um, I actually... I don't mind, I don't, it's, it's easy for me to keep two storylines in my head because, you know, I watch lots of things on TV. Um, I used to have one in the bathroom and I have one by my bed. Um, and then I have 
often have a third book, a research book in my office when I come and sit in my office to watch trash telly. Um, I come, I pick up a research book as well. So, yeah, I could, I can do, I can multitask. Wow, wow, I'm very impressed. I was really heartened as well to hear that you have, um, you often have the TV on when you're yeah, writing. Yeah. Absolutely, you need yeah, to. because I'm, I, I, I do that as well. I often have the TV on or music on. Yeah. When I'm writing too, and I kind of sometimes need that to focus my brain. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, so you need something in the background. I mean, I've, um, I usually have a series that I watch when I'm writing a book. Um, the last one I was watching a lot of The Flash. I love that. Nice, it's a good yes. series. What were you watching when you were, did All My Lies Are True? Can you remember? Um, so I watched a bit of The Flash, but then I had to concentrate because it was the last um, series I hadn't seen before. So I was watching a lot of the Marvel movies. I do like, I do like a Marvel movie, I have to say. Yeah, so um so lockdown I began I've, I've got a Facebook group called um don't spoil the end game because when I first saw the end game I was so traumatized I had to start a Facebook group of similarly traumatized people <laughs> and so when we lockdown started we started re-watching it from the beginning and obviously with the dogs I don't get a chance to sit down at nine o'clock over the evening to watch it um, so I I did watch a, quite a lot of um, Black Panther and um, see because there's quite a few. See, I love Avengers Assemble, I love Rag- Thor Ragnarok, I love Black Panther. That's the ultimate. Um, but I like Endgame. I can't watch Infinity War, and I'm coming up to that point where I'm gonna have to watch Infinity War again, and that's just too too much. I've only seen it twice. And that's two times too many. Too it's just too stressful. It's too stressful. Yeah, it's like, it is really stressful. And I have to wait a whole year for it to be re- resolved. Um, and so, not not to stoke the Marvel fandom fires, but when you went back and started to rewatch from the beginning, which one did you start with? Did you go back and start with the Ed Norton Hulk, or did you start? No, no, we actually with like Iron Man. No, we started um, because I'd watched them from Iron Man. When a Black Panther mm. was about to come out, my husband said, "Shall we watch the movies?" leading up to it um he's not a marvel fan but he he loves me so he was willing to do that and then um (laughs) so we sat down and we watched it in that order so this time around we watched it chronologically so we started with captain america because that was set in the 40s and then Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. went on to captain marvel and so we did it that way so we actually watched uh gardens of the galaxy one after the other quite early on because that was set in the 80s and 90s um, so yes, yeah, so we've watched, we've watched it chronologically. So we got to, um, the last one we watched was Spider-Man. Now it's Thor Ragnarok. And then we've got Infinity War. Ragnarok's great. Love Taika Waititi. Yes, it was, it was hilarious. I, I was actually really taken aback because I didn't, I wasn't that sold on the first two Thor movies. So yeah. Mm, no, no, neither was I. I was like, I like, um, I like Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I oh, like that I love, Winter, I love Winter Soldier. Yeah. yeah, I liked um, Bucky. It's great. Oh yes, anyway. yes, Bucky. Yes, Bucky. <laughs> we need to do a different pod. Though. I feel like I sh- isn't this a different pod? <laughs> I feel I should ask to join Dorothy's Facebook group. <laughs> you should join <laughs> join us on the yes, because every, every time we watch it, I I have a bit where we go Stan Lee with the Stan Lee bit. We always have to point out where Stan Lee arrives. Yeah. Here. Sorry, carry on. Um, it's fine. I just wanted to ask uh, before we wrap things up what you're writing at the moment. Have you said which, what theme of the new book or the next book is? No, can't tell you that because I don't know myself. <laughs> <laughs> Again, my editor, I don't, I don't mean it. 
I don't mean it, Jen. It's not. It's not true. I do know what I'm writing next. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. I'll get there. No, I haven't really started. I have got the idea, and I was. Um, often I will. I will have a good think in the shower, or when I'm cooking, or when I'm going for a walk as well. I will sort of like sort the plot out in my head. So. I've got to take more showers. <laughs> well, I thought we'd workshopped it earlier. I thought we, I thought we'd agree. Yeah, we're not, we're not. we Ice cream girls three is not happening. It's, stop trying to make that happen. It's not going to work. <laughs> Conrad's tail. Yeah, not yet. In a bit. Yeah. Dorothy, oh, Dorothy that thanks was so much for thank doing so bestsellers. Much. No, thank you. Thank you for asking me on. And thank you for this book as well because we both really, really enjoyed it, and it's so great when you get a book come at you out of the blue and you love it. I think it's one of the most exciting feelings in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I can't wait to read what comes next. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Do you think we praised her enough at the end? Then it was it was totally genuine, but yeah, I think I think we just really enjoyed this one um not that we haven't enjoyed the others but there was just something about this one that i think really touched us both yeah i think i can put my finger on it for you and mm. i think what it is is uh with with some of the other writers that we've done so far i've either read one of their previous books mm-hmm. or i've interviewed them before so yeah. there's some kind of connection with dorothy i'd never interviewed her i'd never read a dorothy coombs and much to my embarrassment because i think we, we agreed she was kind of 16 or 17 books in didn't we? yeah yeah i'm even worse so I, i've think, had the ice cream girls but hadn't read it so uh yeah but again i think that's entirely forgivable in that because mm-hmm. Um, maybe what we should do one time is take a photo of our bedroom floors <laughs> and post them and you see the tower of to-be-read mm. books that are on, certainly it's by the side of my bed. I don't know whether you've got somewhere better to keep yours. but Yeah, I'm much know, more the... organised. It's, it's more on a shelf. Right, okay, there we go. <laughs> but it's, I bet it's massive, isn't it? I bet, it's, yeah, I bet it you've is. got at least 20 it books is. that you haven't yeah. read that you want yeah. to read. It's kind of toppling off the edge. <laughs> but um, what I was going to say was then, so when you've got no connection at all to the person that you're interviewing, and then you get to the book and you've no idea what the book's going to be about and it turns out to be a knockout. That's mm. such an exciting feeling. I really love that feeling. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I mean, this is kind of, again, part of the reason why we wanted to do this is to expand our own reading anyway. But one of the, it's not really a downside, but there are now still so many other books because I want to delve into the back catalogues of so many of the people we've been fortunate enough yeah. to chat to already. Yeah. So that yeah. reading list is just growing. Yeah, yeah. Still, there are worse ways to spend exactly. your time. Exactly. It's a fortunate <laughs> position to be in. Very fortunate. And actually, as we've been discussing with our guests, although some of them have struggled to write uh, and read, um, I found a, quite a lot of solace in lockdown in, in reading. I, f- I find, if I'm honest with you now, I find that if I go, right, I'm going to read, I've got to give it at least 15 minutes now to get rid of all the other mess that's in my head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that slowly wafts away and then I'm in the world of the book and then I can go and do a good hour before bed. Yeah, definitely. I think also, which I, I'd fallen out of the habit of doing aside from on holiday, is that I am where possible. It's not generally possible during the week, but at the weekends I'm reading more in the daytime. So I'm carving out, you know, sort of 45 minutes if I can, whereby Mm. usually I might just still be like sorting the laundry or cleaning up that other thing. I'm like, you know what? No, I'm done. I just actually want to sit and read. And that's going to be better for my mental health and everything anyway than the laundry can Mm. always wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is that how feasible is that with you? I know your kids are older than mine, but are they kind of quite happy to occupy themselves during the day? <laughs> if, you, if you say, yeah, I'm just going to go do this outside. Yes, of course. Yeah, you can stay on YouTube for a little bit longer. Trust me, they're fine with that. They're OK. <laughs> That's not an issue. Again, that just kind of feeds into parental guilt. But um, I'm sure that will come out at some other point. <laughs> 
Good. Well, the main thing is that we're both still reading and we hope you are. We hope that you're being inspired by the books that we're bringing to you on bestsellers. And if there's anything that you'd like to draw our attention to, something that you've read recently that you've loved, we'd love to hear from you. Bestsellers podcast, all one word, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. And do, if you can as well, do rate and review us on uh, Apple, on iTunes. That would be great. It just helps more people discover what we're doing here. And here's my brother's wonderfully composed theme music. And if you want some of that, it's the same email address. And he's already had a couple of sniffs as a result of this. So uh, (laughs) get involved. Excellent. Sounds good. Um, Right, off to do some more reading. Reading.